storytelling is really powerful in that we're all sort of trying to process so much of what's going on. And if you reach back with stories as old as time, you find some circularity, you find some hope in the, in the sense that, yeah, we've come through very, very terrible things before. And even if, if not all of us make it, but the stories will outlive us. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, a conversation with Haitian-American author Edwige Danticat on the history of resistance to police violence and loss in the age of COVID-19. Back in February of this year, Edwige Danticat paid a visit to the class I was teaching at Barnard College. She shared a message with my students, which was all about owning our space and our voice in this country as writers of color and of conscience. Edwige was the last guest I had in person in my classroom before the pandemic changed our way of life. And her words stuck with me, especially now, at a time when the United States is once again facing a racial reckoning. People all over the world are on the streets owning their space, owning their voices, and demanding change. Edwige is an award-winning author of several books, including her debut 1994 novel, Breath, Eyes, Memory, about a young Haitian girl reuniting with her mother in New York City, and her 2007 memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, which goes into detail about the death of her own uncle, who was 81 years old when he died in an immigrant detention facility in Florida. Her latest book is titled Everything Inside, It's a collection of short stories where Edwige explores how people come to terms with death, among other themes. Her reflections and writing on the immigrant experience, Haitian-American identity and loss, has gained her many awards, including the MacArthur Genius Award, the Langston Hughes Medal, and the Neustadt International Prize for Literature. We wanted to check in with Edwige and get her insight on the times we're living through right now, In our conversation, Edwige, who, by the way, I've known for over 25 years, reached back to several cases of police violence against Black men and women in New York City in the 1980s and 90s, cases that echo the current moment of today. Edwige Dantica, welcome back to Latino USA. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me just wanted to kind of start out with you kind of just checking in on you. You're a mom, you're a wife, you're a writer, you're a professional, you're, but in your heart, how are you doing right now? I am doing all right um, personally, but I think like so many of us, you know, my heart is troubled. There's so many points of concern right now. Um, In addition to the pandemic, we have watched the recent horror of the public execution of George Floyd. Before that, we heard about the home invasion murder of Breonna Taylor. 
and Ahmaud Arbery preceded that, and then a long list of police killings that go back for me and my youth to Yusuf Hawkins. Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, 1989. For many, it conjures memories of one of the most painful racial incidents in New York City's history, the killing of 16-year-old Yusuf Hawkins. So you have the pandemic, and then you have this reoccurrence in the middle of the pandemic of uh, systemic racism in its most visible form. And I'm, of course, worried about the, the spikes of COVID in the Caribbean and Latin America, and particularly in Haiti. So there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to be concerned about. And and as my mama would say, there's a lot to pray about. <laughs> so Edwidge, you talked about how all of these protests that you're seeing have really brought up a lot of memories because you grew up in Brooklyn after you arrived there when you were 12. And People forget that in the 80s and 90s, uh, and I covered these stories, New York City was a very divided place. So you brought up the murder in 1989 of Yusef Hawkins. He was a young black teenager who was killed by a mob of white teenagers in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. He was literally just at the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong neighborhood because he was black. There was also the 1984 murder of Eleanor Bumpers. She was an elderly, disabled black woman who was shot and killed by police when they tried to evict her from her own apartment in the Bronx. There was also this terrible case in 1997. This was the brutal assault of Abner Luima, Haitian American from Brooklyn who is sodomized by a police officer in a precinct in Brooklyn. And Amadou Diallo, from Guinea, shot at 19 times in a hail of 41 bullets in 1999. You were in Brooklyn. You were in New York City. We have lived through this before. And we thought we had made progress. Yes. You know, actually this week, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I, I've spoken about it to my three brothers. I was 20 years old when... Yusuf Hawkins was murdered. Yusuf Hawkins, I think, was for me the first time that I started following very closely, in part because he was the same age as one of my brothers. And immigrant parents, not all, but Im many immigrant parents, harbor this illusion that if they're a Black, U.S. born or foreign born child, is polite, works hard in school, does all the right thing that they might be able to, you know, escape the brunt of American racism. But for my parents, that case just did something. My parents and myself, for the first 12 years of my life, I had grown up under a brutal dictatorship, the Duvalier dictatorship in Haiti. So there's a kind of caution about authority and about vigilantes, about mobs. And so you come with that, with that fear already. But I remember after Yusuf Hawkins died, I decided my brothers and I were going to the protest. And there was a big march, I think it was September 1989 in downtown Brooklyn, where they were attempting to cross the bridge to march to City Hall. And I remember looking at, over at them during the march and thinking, would I be marching for them one day? Please, no, please. 
And so, of course, that whole notion of like the good immigrant being exempt from police violence was shattered by the uh, police shooting of people like Amadou Diallo. And then there was the atrocious abuse of Abner Louima. So all of that, you know, we marched a lot. <laughs> Even my parents, who were not very political people at all, went to one of the protests at that time. So it was a very volatile and, and really urgent seeming time. So there are echoes of the protests then here, but now to see the whole range of different people and young people at these current protests is very encouraging. You know, there was this really beautiful image that I saw the other day of a protest in New York of young Haitian and Dominican people marching side by side in the protest. And that was just so heartening to see, like all the coalitions that are built. And think of this, Maria. We've all been inside our homes for the most part, right? Unless you're essential workers, we've been inside. And this pandemic that we've been hearing about that can kill us, that has killed so many people, I know. But if that couldn't keep people in, one cannot emphasize the urgency of that enough, that everybody who steps out on the street is saying that this is so important that I'm potentially risking my health to stand out on the street and protest. You brought up those recent images of the Haitian flag right next to the Dominican flags and these protesters linking arms in a message that is saying, you know, Black Lives Matter. So what are you thinking in terms of Latinidad, Latinx people, and the conversation about anti-Blackness that runs deep in Latin America and the Caribbean? Well, thankfully, the young people are already having that conversation, right? But I, I would say to folks, um, my folks, my people, is that we are seeing and we have seen what anti-Blackness does from this very concrete moment of this man being suffocated on the ground to people being shot in their cars when they're pulled over, people being shot in the back. And the stories that we don't see but hear about, if the, you know, if Sandra Bland... The woman who was found dead in a Texas jail cell three days after being arrested during a traffic stop. Who we saw at the beginning of the end of her life, or Breonna Taylor... Louisville police shot and killed 26-year-old Breonna Taylor in her apartment. The women we hear less about. We've seen what anti-Blackness does. Why perpetuate that? The people who are still clinging to that, you know, to this notion, the colorism, the anti-Blackness, that they will follow the example of the young people so that hopefully 30 years from now, we won't be in the same place again. Coming up on Latino USA, my conversation with writer Edwige Danticat continues. Stay with us, no te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. 
BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to learn more and get 10% off your first month. Hey, y'all. I'm Sam Sanders, host of It's Been a Minute. There is a lot going on in the world. So on my show, my guest and I make sense of the news and culture through conversation. It feels like we're living in three movies at once. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. It feels like a Mike Judge movie. It feels like a Spike mm-hmm. Lee movie. And it feels like a Michael Bay movie. Like <laughs> Every Tuesday and Friday, listen and subscribe now to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Recently, Edwige Danticat wrote in The New Yorker and in the Miami Herald about the looming arrival of COVID-19 to Haiti. She detailed how Haitian immigrants were being deported even after they tested positive for COVID-19 and how the aftermath could be catastrophic for the country she was born in. Let's jump back to our conversation. In the case of COVID, it really feels like this is a, an illness that in the case of Haiti, do you think it came from the United States into Haiti. Is that what we're talking about? A different kind of transmission from the advanced modern world, the United States, to Haiti, a country that is still rebuilding in, from, from just the past earthquakes. I wouldn't say that it came from the United States, but there is one way that the United States is spreading COVID to Haiti and other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean, it's through deportations. They're deporting people who are coming from detention centers where they might have been tested or were not tested or were not able to social distance and some had tested positive. There have been several now deportation flights to Haiti and then, and there have been uh, cases in Guatemala specifically where a large number of people have tested positive for COVID after they were deported. They have been deporting people like this, which is cruel and really unconscionable, given that they know that if some of the richest countries in the world have had trouble with their health system dealing with COVID cases, that the places to which they're deporting people like Haiti and other countries would not be able to handle the spread of the disease that these deportations are contributing to. So in an op-ed, Edwige, for the Miami Herald, you wrote that many immigrants are facing deportation. In fact, even those who had tested positive for COVID-19, you wrote about this thing called ICE Air, as in Immigration Customs Enforcement Air, you know, like the airline of um, immigration agents. 
and how children as young as one year old were being deported. And Edwige, you know, it sounds like even as a writer who is writing some kind of horrible fiction, that it could not be as bad as we're seeing and living through right now. And so I'm just wondering about your reaction to all of this as a writer. Well, there's so many things I mean, happening that are hard to process at the moment that if you were writing as fiction, right, as a fiction writer, people would be like, nah, that just makes no sense. The idea that a country that has, you know, in spite of its history with imperialism, regime change, invasions, occupations, has always been lecturing to the world about human rights abuses, right? And has sometimes used those as motivation to invade militarily in other places, is now really actively spreading a deadly disease in, to other countries. And on these flights or very small children and adults and older adults, younger people. And a lot of the people, at least in the case of Haiti, are, are now find themselves in this you know, world of both immigration and pandemic. So it's interesting because I, I'm not sure if I've actually ever told this to you, but in some ways, I feel these ties to you that bind me in some ways, even though we, we, we rarely see each other and we're rarely even in <laughs> touch, but these kinds of binds to you. And, and one of them to me is your uncle Joseph, who you write about mm. in your book, Brother, I'm Dying. And he's the man who basically raised you. And he dies when he is in immigration custody at the Chrome Detention Facility in Miami in the year 2004. This was when, you know, detentions and deportations were on the rise, but nobody was talking about this. And when I was in that Chrome facility many years later for a documentary, I actually met some of the people who worked in the medical unit who had seen your uncle. Mm. Um, and I asked them, he was crying for help. Why did you not help him? And you write, you know, you've written and talked about the fact that you wanted to get to see him and you couldn't make it. And ultimately, he died in the most, um, in the loneliest situation, which was that he was chained to a bed. And um, I'm, I'm thinking about, has your uncle Joseph come to you? Have you been thinking about him in these times of, um, you know, again, of facing these multiple challenges? Oh, I've been thinking about him so much. And Marie, it's not that I couldn't make it. It's they wouldn't let me see him. And so when my uncle... I mean, it's, yeah, it's just staggering to even think about. It's been so many years, but I see echoes of, you know, of George Floyd's screams and, and his story because he kept asking for his medicine, um, which uh, the lawyer who was with him told us. And when he became ill and started vomiting through a trach hole he had in his neck from a larynx removal surgery, he 
was told he was faking. They thought they, they, you know, the, the medic who came to look at him said he was faking. And eventually he was taken to a prison ward in a hospital where he died shackled to a bed at 81 years old. So um, I testified, you know, before um, Congress about his case, along with other families who had also lost loved ones in immigration custody in similar ways. I was watching today a a bit of um, George Floyd's brother's testimony before a congressional panel. George always made sacrifices for our family, and he made sacrifices for complete strangers. He gave the little that he had to help others. He was our gentle giant. And watching, um, you know, Philonius's, Floyd's testimony, I realized that we were, he and I, trying to do the same thing in that moment. We were trying to humanize our loved ones in a public space because they had been murdered by the state, really, right? And so what then happens after that you then have to be out there saying over and over with all the the new commitments that you've taken on because you really, really do not want this to happen to somebody else's family. But part of that job is also saying he was a father. You know, things that you, you know, you really shouldn't have to say after because someone was murdered. You're like, he was a minister. He was an uncle. He was a father. He was loved. He was loved. He was loved. And that becomes as much activism as the other kind of activism that you end up taking on after you've lost a loved one in that terrible way. So I want to shift for a moment um, to talk about something else that you write incredibly insightfully about. And that's, and obviously we're all thinking about this, which is loss. Um, and the grieving that comes with loss. So I live right here in New York City, which um, has been the epicenter. And um, Edwige, I have, like you, I have lost like quite a few people through COVID. And so I want to turn to your latest work. It's it's your book, Everything Inside. And one of the short stories that you center the issue of loss and grief, it's a young woman. Her name is Nadia. And she travels from New York to Miami to meet her dying father. I'm wondering if you can set us up for what you're about to read right now. So this is indeed a a story of loss. And it's called In the Old Days. And it's interesting now that, you know, I was talking to one of my daughters the other day and and I said, in the old days. And I realized that I meant like two months ago. But before I read you this small excerpt, I want to also acknowledge this kind of loss that we have these days. I can't tell you now how many Zoom and Facebook funerals I have seen. 
which feels like an extraordinary layer, another layer to the loss that losses that we're feeling because we can't travel to comfort people. You can't touch people. You can't really help people travel through these rituals that have comforted us, both at home and in migration, the wakes, the you know, the repast and, and so much of that. So I think this lack of rituals as we experience loss has also been one of the scarring aspect of this COVID-19 moment. So um, in the story, this young woman is recalling the old days as she's facing um, her father who, who she's traveled to see but doesn't get there in time. So the excerpt is from a story called In the Old Days, and the book is titled Everything Inside. My father's wife had her own version of the old days. In the old days, she was telling me, conch shells blared for each person who died. In the old days, when a baby was born, the midwife would put the baby on the ground, and it was up to the father to pick up the child and claim it as his own. In the old days, the dead were initially kept at home. Farewell prayers were chanted, and morning dances were performed at their joy-filled wakes. When it was time to take the dead out of the house, they would be carried out feet first through the back door, and not the front, so they would know not to return. Their babies and young children would be passed over their coffins, so they would shake off their spirits and wouldn't be haunted for the rest of their lives. Then a village elder would pour rum on the graves as a final farewell. In the old days, she said, I would have pronounced my father dead with my bereavement wails to our fellow villagers, both the ones crowding the house and others far beyond. Looking down at my father's dead face, in which I saw no trace of my own, I wanted to grab him and shake him, force him to wake up and explain to me his version of the old days. He was a good man, a very good man, my father's wife explained. I know he would have wanted you to be part of his final rites. Edwige, that was really powerful. Thank you for reading that for us. And I'm just wondering, finally, as we move forward, what are you thinking about? And is there anything that you're holding on to in these moments to help you to push forward? I think back to my to my ancestors, right? I think back to what they've had to overcome. And Haitian ancestry, certainly uh, with um, Haiti, this small country fighting to become the first Black republic, in the Western Hemisphere, but I also think of our common ancestors, right? All of those people who have fought and sacrificed and have died for us all to have a better life. So I stop to think about them and I, and I honor that. And I try to hope that we can all live up to this moment in a way that honors them. And my hope, you know, is that both with COVID and in this moment that we're living now, is that we all come out of this better. And there are days when I feel like, yes, we're going to be better after this. And there are other days when I'm not so sure. But I think, you know, being a, a parent, certainly 
falls into how much hope you allow yourself to have. And, and if you have, if you have kids, you have to have hope, right? Because there has to be a future for them. And the hope is one that I think my parents had with all the sacrifices they made to come here is that that future will be a little bit better than the past. Edwidge, it was great to speak with you again. I send you a huge virtual big bear hug from New York to Miami. Same too. Edwige Danticat is an award-winning Haitian-American writer based in Miami. Her latest book is titled Everything Inside. This episode was produced by Janice Yamoka and edited by Luis Treyes. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Sofia Parisaca, Antonia Cerejido, Ginny Montalvo, Alisa Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar, with help from Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our interns are Sofia Sanchez and Marie Mendoza. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. In the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. Remember, stay safe. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. The Heising Simons Foundation. Unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. More at hsfoundation.org. And the Ford Foundation. Working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. In the end, it'll just be Janice and us. (laughs) 